0: They'd work together every day at a furniture delivery business. Um, You know, Gary would be lifting one end of the couch and Randy would have the other end of the couch going upstairs and downstairs and back upstairs and around the other way and through the back door and people always joked that they looked so much alike and and they always, it was like a running joke between them. But Randy had been researching his family history because he had been adopted as a baby and a new law in Maine had just allowed him to finally see his original birth certificate for the first time. And that's when he learned that both of his parents had passed away and he would never get to meet them, but that they had had another son who was born on June 10th, 1974. Then on a furniture delivery run, it it happened again. A customer commented on how much Randy looked like Gary and Randy started nonchalantly asking Gary some more personal questions like when his birthday is June 10th 1974 Randy said as soon as he said his birthday I knew Gary is my brother it was 2009 and for the first time in his life he had just found his family they had been in Two, they were two towns apart growing up. They had gone to, you know, you know uh, competing rival high schools, uh, and yet they had never really known about each other. And it was a shock to them both. Gary said, I still can't wrap my head around it. A co-worker commented, there's nothing like family, especially when you don't have one. And now they have family. In a sense, that's really Christ's vision for his church. Because we are family, he says. That vision to be able to meet at church on a Sunday to worship God, realizing that you're here with people with whom you have the most important things in common. Because if you are a Christian, if you have given your life to Jesus... Received him as your Savior and committed to follow him. God has adopted you into his family, and you are now a son or daughter of the Most High God, a sibling of Jesus Christ, your big brother, who reigns at the right hand of the Father now interceding for you, and part of a larger family of all of those Jesus followers in all the earth who, across language, across continents, across cultural differences, across the thousands of of years, the centuries, and the millennia, all have one thing in common. that's your baby brother. That's my big sister. To be able to gather and have that family relationship, to start being the family that we never knew we had. It's a vision here in the epistle to the Hebrews. We've been going through this letter written to these Jewish followers of Jesus who are being tempted to return back to the rituals of Judaism by their families, their friends, their co-workers, their former synagogues, everybody pressuring them to go back to to pharisaical, rabbinical Judaism and to give up on Jesus. And here they're hearing in Hebrews 12 and 13 about the family and the kingdom that they have received. I'm going to start in Hebrews 12, verse 28, and go through the 10th verse of chapter 13. This is the word of our great, holy, righteous, and compassionate God. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing some people have, have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace not by ceremonial foods which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. What do we see here? First of all, Jesus is reminding us of our sibling obligations. He says, keep on loving each other as brothers, meaning he's commending them because they have been loving each other as brothers, as siblings. And he's saying, keep on doing that. The the Greek term is Philadelphia, that term for brotherly love, and it's the language of kinship, the language of family. You know, and you realize what it meant in the first century in antiquity to be family. You know, understand, Judah... Palestine, it was very much still a tribal culture, and our our modern concept of family is anemic, and so we hear family of God, and it means nothing to us, nothing, because we don't understand what family meant to them. Our concept today of family, particularly if you are a white American, not from certain small pockets of the Southeast, what family means to you is your household, your spouse, and 2.1 children, uh, and that's it, that's your family. There are other people who are sort of extended family, but but the family is the nuclear family. That's our norm in Western civilization. And yet, that is not the norm in antiquity. And that's not what we were being told that we are as the Church of God. In antiquity, what it meant to be family is family was your mother, your father, your children, your grandchildren, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, your first cousins, your second cousins, your second cousins once removed, doubled over, um, sunny side up. You know, the whole thing was your family. You know, your family literally lived in a village with you and maybe the next village over. If you wanted to get, if you were single like me, not a problem. You are surrounded by family all the time. Childless, you are surrounded by family. The Bible says more are the children of she who has no of she who is barren than of she who has a family. Because you would be recruited 24-7. You were always the whole extended family was always watching all of the kids together, discipling all of the kids together, training the kids all together. Everybody, the eldest were Done right, honored for being the eldest, the wisest, the most experienced. The youngest had a community in which they could learn, and there were continual, daily opportunities to both give love and receive love. You were never alone, and within that that extended family, if you wanted to get married, you couldn't marry anybody in your village because they're too closely related. You needed to go one or two villages over so that you could at least get like a first cousin once removed. You know, it was just the way it worked. Um, and that's what Jesus says, you are, the church is, that kind of family. And within that family structure and antiquity, there were all sorts of, of duties and obligations, responsibilities you had as a family member. If a family member strayed and got lost, you had to go find the family member at risk of your own life. It's not charity. It wasn't something extra nice you were doing. You were obligated. To not do so would be to dishonor your family and bring shame upon the whole village. You know, if your family member got arrested and was put in jail, it doesn't matter what they did. Your job was to defend them. Your job was to go take food to them because in antiquity, they didn't have food service in the prisons. You died of starvation unless you had family to bring you food. And so you take them family and then you you do everything you can to get them out of there. And you defend their honor until you got home. And then you chew them out for what they did. But you do it in private because you were protecting them as your family. Uh, you know, if if. If a family member was homeless, you invited them into your home because this is your sister, this is your brother, this is your child, this is your mother, this, this is family. It meant everything. It was the main context in which love and experience was had in antiquity, was in the context of your family, which was usually your village, and it's all you had. And then Jesus came along. And he stuck a firecracker in it, and the whole thing blew apart. It was like the thermonuclear reaction of Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, what we read earlier, when Jesus, for his followers, took that ancient concept of family and redefined it. Remember, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and, you know, you know, his family shows up, and somebody says, Jesus, your mother and brothers are, are waiting for you. And what Jesus should have done by the standards of antiquity, because they were his family, he should have stopped teaching, left his followers, gone to his mother and brothers, dealt with whatever they needed him to do, and then dutifully being faithful to them and responsible and discharging his family duties, then he could come back and continue, you know, teaching. But he didn't do that. He left them waiting at the door, and he said, Who are my mother and brothers and sisters and family members? but you who do the will of my Father in heaven. He's saying what family meant in antiquity, that's what the church is. And you are duty-bound. If a fellow follower of Jesus is going to be homeless, you have to take them into your house. That is not charity. That is family duty and obligation, or find a place for them. Uh, If, you know, a fellow Christian was in jail you've got to go take food to him. He specifies that. Take, take food. To them. You know, go and visit those in jail as if they were your own because they're your family. Um, you know, If your fellow Christian is um, you know, in some kind of debt, your job as their sibling in Jesus is to help pay off their debt. It's a concept that, from an American perspective, it seems like you give up all of your privacy to follow Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, You have to give up your privacy. You have to give up control over your home, control over your car, control over your finances, control over everything, because you have a family in that ancient sense. And all of the duties and obligations of that, it meant this heightened sense of solidarity with the family of God. Don't forget to entertain strangers, he says. Um, you know some argue that strangers here are speaking of non-christians i do not think that is supported by the context this is all about followers of jesus loving each other as brothers that's the command here continue loving each other as brothers that means within god's household you know a lot of times people say religious things that sound kind of nice like well god is everybody's father and we're all you know family but that's not what the bible says not about all of humanity The Bible says humanity is estranged from God because our first parents were made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, walking with God in the garden, knowing no shame. And then they declared their independence, and they were declaring all of our independence. And so we all start outside the garden, estranged from God. And the Bible says the way God becomes our father is it's it's to those who received Jesus that he gave the right to become children of God We're all of humanity, is not children of God. That's something. You have to be adopted into the family of God by trusting Jesus to be a child of God. Uh, The Bible teaches the universal neighborhood of humanity and that we're responsible to love all of humanity because there are neighbors, but there's a special responsibility for your fellow believers because they're family. Um, There's a a, a degree of self-sacrifice you will make for family that you will not make for a stranger. And that's what we're to do here. And it's interesting because, you know, the Bible also says, you know, if a person will not work, they will not eat. So it's like, this is balance, this call to radical generosity. um, And yet also this sense of being careful that our giving is empowering people, not enabling their sinful patterns or laziness or just general lack of health. possibly the earliest certainly one of the earliest surviving christian writings outside of the new testament um from sometime between the year 50 and 70 ad is, is called the Didache, which sometimes it's called the teachings of the 12 apostles and it's an early christian writing it predates half the new testament but it, it's not scripture because it wasn't written by the apostolic community but but by followers of jesus who were writing down bits and pieces of jesus teaching and and applying it to the early christian communities and and, and the Didache, in the middle of the first century, talks about this difference. It says, do not hesitate to give, and do not grumble when giving. He's talking to the Christian, the early Christians, that first generation of Christians, just decades after Jesus rose. Do not hesitate to give, and don't grumble when you do. Do not turn away from those who are actually in need, but share everything with your brother. That's your fellow Christian. Um... And do not say that your possessions are your own, for if you are partners in what is imperishable, how much more will you be partners in perishable things? If one who comes is a traveler, that's a a traveling teacher, um, early Christian teachers, they didn't have pastors in all the churches, the teachers would have to travel around. If one who comes is a traveler, assist him as much as you can, but do not let him stay with you more than two or three days, unless there is some necessity. If he wishes to settle with you and is a craftsman, let him work for his living. If he's not a craftsman, decide according to your own discernment how he shall live as a Christian among you. But he must not live in idleness. If he will not do this, he is the type that uses Christ for personal gain. Stay away from such as these yeah these early Christians grappling with the, the various teachings of the New Testament was which, which was very hard to access at this point. it was just being copied and, and, and spread uh, throughout these these various Christian communities. they were still nevertheless realizing Christ calls us to give up our own possessions to share everything and and to consider nothing our own and and to offer into our lives, into our communities into our churches any Christian who is in need. For three days. And then if it's a real emergency, then you figure out, okay, you're going to be here long term. Let's figure out how you're going to make a living. Um, Empowering, giving, not enabling. We have this duty. Continue. Keep on loving each other as brothers. This duty to those who, who we need to be taking care of each other, but also not in a way that's going to enable our sin. We have a duty to those who are hurting, those who are prisoners, those who have mistreated you, uh, as if you treat them as if you yourself were doing it. It doesn't matter why they're in prison, Um, they're your family. A duty to our siblings' marriages. Marriage should be honored by all, we read, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. You know, as, as a pastor with a very sensitive heart who loves all of you, there's a part of me that wants to buffer that and say, well, of course, I mean, your sins are all forgiven, dot, 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 dot. But that, that warning is there for a reason because we need to hear that. If you're cheating on your spouse, you need to hear that warning that God will judge you for that. If you're sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse, you need to hear that because everybody's doing it. And we all need to hear it. If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to give up your privacy and let people into that so they can help you walk with him. Because we have a duty to our siblings in Christ to protect their marriages, to to protect each other in our most vulnerable and sensitive places, which is where we're most likely to be taken advantage of. We have a family obligation to protect each other, a duty of radical generosity. Keep your lives free from the love of money, he says. Gosh, these are the things that trip us up. There is nothing that trips us up like sexual sin and money. You know, There's nothing like it. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have now because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. you know, the, the gospel enables us to see money as just what it is. It's just money. It's not my security. It's not my hope. It's not my future. My security is Jesus, who says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We have a responsibility to follow the faith of our leaders. He says, remember your leaders and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Uh, You know, any Christian leader who has any level of humility before God is not looking for wealth, and they're not looking for a big name for themselves, and they're not looking for a successful ministry. What they really want is to look at the people who are following and see them loving Jesus and being loved by Jesus. What we want to see is your faith, that you're making sacrifices to do what he tells you to do because you love him and you trust him and you trust how Jesus feels about stuff more than you trust your own heart. That's what we want. Remember your leaders and imitate their faith. That's Any spiritual leader's greatest longing is that you would have a vital, life-giving, self-sacrificing faith in your best friend Jesus. And because of that, you would have a joy, even on the worst day of your life, enough joy to be able to get out of bed and face the day and trust God with the results. Imagine the church living together as family. Keep on loving each other as brothers. I was convicted hearing a, a story from a, he's an American uh, uh, pastor who was visiting uh, some other Christians in West Africa, and there was this uh, one West African pastor that he was speaking to, who had a uh, uh, a woman living in his home with his wife and, and kids that kind of raised a few eyebrows. He asked some questions, and what he found out is that the this African West African pastor had just started ministering in a new city where he had moved with his family. And as he was walking out of his door one day, he heard the most beautiful singing uh, just passing over the whole neighborhood. And as he began following this, he could hear that this beautiful singing were actually Christian hymns. Somebody was singing the most beautiful versions of Christian hymns just out loud. And as he approached her, he saw how she was dressed. Short, short dress, high fishnet stockings, plunging neckline, lots of makeup. He walked up to her as she was singing to Jesus and he asked what her story was and she explained that she had been abducted and she had been trafficked and she was being forced to do things that made her feel much shame. She was being forced to do things that were sinful and that degraded her and that if she didn't do it, her pimp had told her he would hunt her down and kill her and she had no way of getting back to her family and no way of safety. And so that West African pastor said, come with me. And she didn't know what it was, but he took her home, introduced her to her wife, introduced her to his wife and to his children, and said, you're going to be living with us. And if the people who are threatening you come after you, we and the whole church will defend you to our death. This American pastor said, wow, that's pretty extreme. Self-sacrificial act of incredible love. And the West African pastor looked at him like he was talking to a fool and said, I would think any Christian would do that if he believed she was really his sister. If you want to follow Jesus, you gotta give up your privacy. You gotta give up your security. You gotta trust him. Because he says that's our sister. And we have duties and obligations. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Why is this hard? It's hard for a number of reasons. First, it's hard for, because of fear. You know, What if you bring her into your home and your kids see things and hear things and maybe because of her line of work she's got some coarse vocabulary and your kids are going to start using words that you do not want your kids using in Sunday school. You know, um, Well, you're going to have to trust God with that. Um, Our fear for the future will keep us from loving. Our fear to protect our own, that self-protective impulse, will keep us from loving our siblings in Jesus. And God zeroes in on that fear, saying, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You can give everything away and be abjectly poor, and I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. You know, some of you hear that and you think that you're the exception to that, that God's saying that to every other follower of Jesus, but he's saying it to you right now. You know who you are, he's saying it. You're not believing him, but he's saying, I see you, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And I want you to focus not on taking care of yourself, but on taking care of those around you that I give you as siblings in Jesus. We can be paralyzed into inaction if we don't believe God loves us. And and it's difficult, though, because of our fear. And it's difficult because there's always some false teacher peddling empty religion instead of Jesus. Um, Few things will sap away your generosity than losing sight of the gospel. If you get into self-righteous pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps religion, what that will do is it will taint any generosity you have and make it incredibly difficult for you to be generous because you're going to look at poor people and because you need to prove that you're one of the righteous people, you're going to think you're superior and you're going to despise the poor person and if you are generous toward the poor person it's going to be out of a self-salvation effort because you're trying you're using that poor person to make yourself into one of the righteous people and that's not love either Um, people tell me, Greg, you preach grace, grace, grace but, but that's not going to motivate me to live a holy life I beg to differ If you really understand, I know I am the biggest ball of sin and iniquity in human history, and Jesus loves me, and he has clothed me, and God sings over me in song, and no one can take that away from me. And that makes me love him more, and that makes me want to sacrifice more, and that makes me want to give more, because I know I'm secure, and I know I'm loved, He says, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods which are of no value to those who eat them. Religion is an empty alternative to grace. It's of no value. But if you're afraid and don't believe that God's going to take care of you, or if you're doing the works-based religion thing, you know, your your performance treadmill to be one of good people, uh, It'll take away all your desire to give generously out of love for other people, and and sometimes it's just you're afraid of the future because you realize that you do not have the ability to control the future. There is a future ahead for every single one of us in this room that is unplanable, uncontrollable, and unknowable, and you won't know until it happens. But the thing is, was well, like the old Presbyterian joke. I think there's only one Presbyterian joke. You know, it's the, the guy falls down the steps. He gets to the bottom and he says, I'm glad that one's over with. Um, because God is sovereign. We don't, we don't control the future, but there is one who does control the future. And that's Jesus. And he's our best friend. And so we say with confidence, we read here, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If God is your helper you know, then you don't have to take care of yourself. That's God's department. You don't have to handle the future. That's God's responsibility. You don't even have to get results. That's God's job. You can fail abjectly and miserably. Be the worst business person in human history. Live in a cardboard box and and, and eat, you know, little little smokies every day as your main nutrition and know that Jesus loves you. And you will have a freedom that you will not have if you are driving yourself continually trying to merit yourself to be one of the good, successful, happy people making everybody around you miserable. The gospel has such power. So how is it possible? It's possible because of the gospel. Jesus says that, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not bound by the limitations of time. He is God in the flesh. And he says here that we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaking. You know, I, I watched, you know, scenes from Marrakesh in Morocco this week of the the great minaret. It's a big rectangular tower that's considered the roof of of Marrakesh, And I watched that thing during this earthquake swaying, brick tower, mud brick tower, swaying back and forth. And and by God's grace, it didn't collapse and kill a lot of people. But, But as I watched that, picturing a kingdom being shaken, physically, and buildings crumbling all around, we're receiving a kingdom, we read, that cannot be shaken. You know, we've lived through an era in the last three and a half years in which we have watched the very foundations of Western civilization shaken. I remember by March of the year 2000, driving down Highway 40 at 5 o'clock in the afternoon without a single car on the road. I remember going by the Galleria all closed up, Target all closed up, everybody at home, every office shut down. No but no restaurant was open, nothing was happening. The the very you know global economy was shaken. Manhattan had Cadavers stacked outside of hospitals waiting for more refrigerator trucks to come in in order to load them because people were dying so quickly. Everything was silent. All the world had stopped and millions of people died. No country on earth escaped. Small islands of the Pacific Ocean were just waiting for their first case, knowing that it would come, and it always came. The foundations of human civilization were shaken, but we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We don't know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. And God has taken on himself the very family responsibilities he gives us He says we're responsible to take care of each other, to pay down each other's debts, to take each other in, to feed each other in jail, to come to each other's defense, and to be that family of love in which there are no needy people. Not just here in this church, but with all of God's people and all the earth. We are responsible as the family of God to take care of our siblings wherever they are, whatever their denomination, whatever their background, whatever their language, the family of God. And yet that responsibility God himself took on himself when he chose to adopt us and become our father. You know in antiquity when the way adoption very often happened in the Roman world was it would often be a senator or some other landed aristocrat, wealthy person who did not have an heir who would adopt a son. Perhaps he had had multiple sons that they may have died in battle, they may have died of disease, they may have died of of plague or of of, of exposure of any number of things. Death was very, very common in the ancient world and you could have a lot of kids and have none of them survive. And if, if a man had no surviving son, he would often take a teenager or young adult, might even be a slave, and adopt him as his son and give him his name. And if that adopted son had debts and liabilities, it was the father's responsibility, therefore, to cover the debts and to pay off all the responsibilities. Whatever they were, whatever the cost, those debts and responsibilities transferred from the son to the father, and the son bore them no more. And the father would have to do whatever it takes to pay them down. And then all of the father's land his estates his titles his seat in the senate would all be transferred to that son and he would be elevated and everything the father had would therefore become his and that is what Jesus did for us that's what the father did when he adopted you as his little girl as his little boy is everything he has now belongs to you and whatever debts and liabilities he had you had are now on his shoulders and that's what Jesus was doing When he went to the cross, Jesus had taken your debts and your responsibilities as the second person of the Trinity, as God in the flesh. He took all your debts and all your responsibilities to the cross, and he paid them, and he paid them in full, and you no longer bear your sin. Christ has borne it for you fully, finally, and forever. Give praise to God because the Lord has done this. He has saved you. He has rescued you. He has been everything a father in antiquity would be for you in taking all of your debts and liabilities and providing for you and giving you every blessing in him. And because of that, the voice of Jesus is speaking through his servant, through this letter, saying, keep on loving each other as brothers I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I love to tell the story of Ernest Gordon. If you're in this church very long, you'll get it about once every year or two. Uh, Ernest Gordon was a Scotsman in the 2nd Battalion, the Sutherland Highlanders, during the Second World War, and he fought in the, Malaysian, uh, the Malayan campaign, and then in the Battle of Singapore, and he was one of the last to get out, was captured by Japanese forces, and forced to work in a POW camp as a prisoner of war, an internment camp tasked with constructing the Siam de Burma Railroad and the bridge over the river Kwai. There were over 80,000 prisoners of war in that camp that died while building that railroad. They died from disease. They died from malnutrition. They died from cruelty, and yet the worst cruelty was not that inflicted upon them by Japanese soldiers. The worst cruelty was that inflicted upon them by their fellow prisoners of war. It was a brutal culture. If you could steal another's food, you were going to starve, otherwise, you stole their food. If you found somebody had left their boots for a moment, while they, they went off to, to grab a drink of water or something, you stole their boots, because your boots were falling apart, and you were getting trench foot, and your, 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 the soles of your feet were lacerated, and you needed boots. If you had to kill somebody, you killed them in order to save your own life. You did what you had to. You would steal their blanket if you needed a blanket. It was dog-eat-dog, every man for himself. The entire culture was a lot of people who were all in a horrible shape, and yet they were suffering so bad they could not rise above it in love. It was every man for himself until one day something happened that changed the entire culture among the prisoners of war. It was the day that they brought in a labor detail and they counted the shovels and they found that one shovel was missing. The Japanese guards lined up the men and demanded that the culprit confess. And then when no one did, a guard raised his gun to shoot the first prisoner and promised to continue down the line. And then a young enlisted man, a kid really, stepped out of line And he said, I took the shovel. And the guard took the butt of his gun, cracked his skull, and killed him on the spot. Later that day, they recounted the shovels and discovered that there was not a shovel missing after all. Instantly, all the prisoners realized what had happened. One young man had stepped out of line to take it for all the rest of them. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. He stepped out of line to take it for the rest of us. And because of what that one soldier did, the whole culture of the camp changed. They began nursing each other with their wounds. They began sharing their food, sharing their boots. Men went around with just one boot on each on, on one boot on one foot and the other bare because they wanted to share their boots because one kid had stepped out of line and shown them what self-sacrificial love looks like it changed the entire camp and the whole place was transformed and that's what Jesus did for us so that our culture as his family could be transformed into a culture that reflects back to one another the self-sacrificial love that Jesus has given us. We can wash each other's feet because Jesus is washing our feet. And that frees us up to love. When you see a church of people sacrificing to love and disciple and help each other grow, then you will find the church that Jesus died to create. Let's pray.